Welcome to the 1740 podcast with me, Alexander War, and Maudie Lowe. Hello. Hello, Maudie. We're very, very excited, aren't we, Maudie, today? Because yes, we've got we a, an, an incredibly special guest. I can't believe how we've uh, managed to get this guest on today because he is, uh, fact, the greatest living Shakespearean actor. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of opinion. It's, it's a fact. And it's not just me saying it. And uh, millions of people have said it. And you can find people much more knowledgeable than I am about Shakespeare and the theatre who are absolutely convinced that our guest today is the greatest living Shakespearean actor. And we're going to talk to him about Shakespeare and about his time with Shakespeare and all that Shakespeare means to him and some of the things he's done acting Shakespeare and possibly we'll even talk a little bit about the identity of William Shakespeare as well. He is, of course, Sir Derek Jacobi. Welcome, Derek. Thank you very much. We're very honoured to have you on today. My great pleasure. I hope I can live up to that extraordinary introduction. <laughs> well, it's just it's just a fact, and I'm sticking with it. You are you are the greatest living Shakespearean actor, and you have an uh, have an extraordinary ability to turn Shakespearean words and speeches into more than music. It's it's just an unbelievable communication, and. A lot of people, as you know, find Shakespeare quite difficult to understand. Some of the lines are, are, are obscure. Uh, I've never heard you read or act a single line of Shakespeare that wasn't clear to me what it meant. And that's a real gift. There are not many who can do that. In fact, a lot of actors, I think, make it even more obscure than it needs to be. But can we can we start by um, one thing? I'm going to tax you on, Derek. Um, I know you've 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 gone over the 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 four score years now. So forgive me if this is difficult. But I'm going to tax you a little bit on memory. And I was going to ask yeah. you: Do you actually remember? your first encounter in boyhood? Was it at school? Was it your parents reading to you or whatever? Your first encounter with Shakespeare that was meaningful to you? Yes, my I think my first encounter at school, uh, talk about starting at the top, I played Hamlet at school in, in the annual school play. And uh, uh, from then on, I was learning a great deal. Somebody, I think it was my English master who said, treat all the poetry as prose and all the prose as poetry. And that sort of stayed with me. And that's what I tried to do. And, and curiously, it, it worked. Um, it, it made some of the most obscure Shakespearean passages clear when, when, you, and when you stop being afraid of it and and just um, tackled it head on and loved it and enjoyed it and desperately wanted to communicate it and make the audience understand what you were saying. And, and often it's difficult, it's, 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 it's hard, but um, you're doing it for an audience. And if they don't understand what you're saying and what you're thinking and what you're feeling, why do it? Can you remember? I mean, how old were you when you acted Hamlet? I was a teenager. I I um I was uh, uh eight, seventeen, eighteen. 
But and then can you remember how you got the role? I mean, they, they must have thought we've got a very exceptional young actor in this school in order to put Hamlet on at all in the first place. Or did you have to audition against the other boys? And... No, I'd, I'd been in school plays. It was my I think it was my last year at school before I went to university. Um, so I was I was I was 18, I think. And I uh, I'd been in several school plays and uh, we had an English teacher who was very keen on theatre and had taken um, numbers of boys to uh, theatres, particularly the old Vic. So I'd seen quite a lot of Shakespeare, professional Shakespeare. And he cast me as Hamlet. And he also got us on to the Edinburgh Festival, the fringe of the Edinburgh Festival that year. Um, and so I played Hamlet and on the fringe of the festival and it was reviewed by professional uh critics um and you know they said look at this uh, and the, the 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 main thing um on uh view at the festival that year was a play called the hidden king and it got very bad reviews the critics didn't like it and uh i remember a couple of them saying look at these kids on the fringe doing this marvellous Hamlet and the professionals mucking it up in a <laughs> professional um, So we got a lot of backhanded compliments. Um, and so uh, I was about to go up to Cambridge and uh, we had uh, a lot of publicity in, in the papers, in, in, in the Times and you know, in the main papers. And so when I went up, uh, I got an interview. I, I was um, in what was called the pool. I, uh, I I'd been ill before, very badly ill before the um, examinations uh, for university, and I got in the pool. They weren't quite sure whether I was university material, so I got an interview at King's College and an interview at St John's College, um, and and they had all read these these reviews and it did me a lot of good. I eventually was accepted by uh, St. John's and uh, the next three years I uh, did some academic work but um, acted most of the time. Yeah. Uh, there were many um, acting uh, um, associations in, in Cambridge and uh, there was of course the very famous Marlowe Society that uh, did uh, um, a play per uh, year, and uh, you were invited to join the the cast of the Marlowe Society, and um, I did, and I ended up playing Hamlet again at uh, Cambridge. Uh, that went to the open air theatre at Stratford upon Avon. Uh, where I was, I didn't realize, but in the audience of one of the uh, performances were all the big wigs from the Birmingham Rep. And when my, at the end of my three years at Cambridge, um, I decided that I wanted to be a professional actor, I wrote begging letters to various reps all around the country. And when my letter landed on the desk at Birmingham, I said, This is, this is that boy we saw playing Hamlet at Stratford. Um, and I got a job, and I stayed there for three years. Talk about luck. 
Wow, that's amazing. Um, going back to your first performance as a Hamlet, were there any specific emotions or challenges that you faced during the first performance? I suppose one one of the challenges was that we were all boys. Um, Gertrude was in drag. Um, <laughs> and, and so was Ophelia. Uh, and... Uh, the, the, the main challenge, I, I think, was able to learning it. Um, and, uh, of course, you were playing to an audience of, of doting parents. So the audience were kind of on your side. Um, but I, I, loved, I loved it. I loved it. And I, uh, it convinced me that that was the world I wanted to be in. Uh, that was that was the world that I had uh, most talent for. Um, I couldn't think of what I was going to do after um, grammar school, um, and suddenly I knew I was going to be an actor. And how did that experience shape your perception of Shakespeare's works? Uh, they before um, I think they were they they in a way still were mountains to climb. But uh, Shakespeare's works were no longer um, so uh, unassailable. They, they became, as I, as I read them, um, from the point of view of performing, um, they became infinitely more accessible and ceased to be Shakespeare. And uh, I wasn't frightened of them anymore. And, um, I, I could uh, see the beauty of them, but also the ordinariness of them. Um, they were real people. They were speaking what used to sound to me highfalutin, but now they, they were perfectly accessible human beings who were speaking in a, in a, a highly charged, uh, often flowery way. But what they were saying and what they were thinking and what they were feeling was just like anybody else. Yeah. Now you're you're you were an only child, weren't weren't you, Derek? Yeah. yeah. Did did your did your parents encourage you in Shakespeare? Or was this something you you sort of took off off your own bat from a schoolmaster or something? Yes. No, they did. I I was an only child. I was also a war baby. Uh, I was born uh, the year before war broke out. And I was evacuated and all that carry on. So I didn't really see my father um, until uh, after the end of the war. Um, and uh, they, they were doting parents, I have to say. Um, they uh, gave me everything, their love and whatever ever I wanted somehow. I was I was spoiled rotten, uh, but hopefully I I I survived being spoiled. And um, of course, we lived in London. And had they had had they been to university? Had they been to Cambridge? Uh, had they? No, 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 no. They they both they were both tradesmen. They both my 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 mother worked in the local high street, as did my father when he came out of the army. He had a sweet shop for several years. Um, in in Chingford, and uh, no, 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 no. They 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 were. My mother was more educated than my father, 
uh, dad wasn't particularly educated at all. Um, they, but they must have been astounded when they came to see you playing Hamlet, age 17. What 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 had they given birth to? <laughs> I think they were. I think they were. But the, the, the great thing was that um, I think because I was the only one, uh, I got sort of whatever I wanted. I, it didn't it didn't make me um, one of those awful children, you know, um, but they did indulge me shall we say. The first theatre I ever went to, they took me to the, the pantomime at the London Palladium. And uh, during the course of the pantomime, the uh, leading lady, um, Prince Charming and Dandini, um, both famous um, actresses and performers, came down into the auditorium and picked a few kids to go up on the stage. Um, and I was one of the kids they picked. So the first stage really? I was ever on was the London Palladium. How extraordinary. And, and, do, uh, do, do, do you remember your first Shakespeare play that you ever went to and uh, whether that had a, an effect on it or whether the actors in it uh, inspired you to start thinking of becoming an actor? Yes, I remember. I can't remember exactly. I think it was Hamlet. Uh, well, that we had kind of regular visits to the Old Vic in London. Um, and I saw Richard Burton playing Hamlet, uh, John Neville. That's right, John Neville and Richard Burton um, alternated Hamlet. One played Hamlet and one played uh, Horatio, I think, and they alternated them. Um, so the Old Vic was, was the first theatre in London that um, had a huge effect on me. Um, I, and I loved going to the Olympic, mainly in school parties, mainly sitting up in the bogs. Um, and then uh, eventually, of course, I, I played the Olympic and it was, it was a wonderful circle, you know. Is there a specific scene or character from the works of Shakespeare that resonates with you most? Oh, that's a difficult one. Uh, <laughs> they kind of they they all do. I think. Um, I mean, Hamlet is is the play that I've done over four hundred performances of. So it's the one that first springs to mind. But I've I've been in in many of them, and uh, I but the the one play, the one that I. Uh, didn't think I could do, um, and some, and eventually the director said, "Unless you do it now, uh, you won't. Uh, you'll be too old, too old to do it." And that was Leah when I was in my seventies, and uh, that has that has stayed with me uh, very much. So, um, but Hamlet for me is is the one because I also got to play Hamlet at Elsinore. Um, in in the castle, uh, the castle at Elsinore. Uh, wow, that was that was great. That was wonderful. To 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 a largely Danish audience, I, I imagine, but they well, understood. It was the height of the tourist season, so there were there were English people there as well. But as you say, yes, uh, the Danes, um, Her Majesty the the uh, Danish Queen Margrethe came and. Uh, uh, she came, and the, the lady in waiting came twice. Uh, really? Yes, and then 
Um, and then uh, the Queen gave me a Danish knighthood. Um, hooray, hooray, and jolly well deserved. But so, Derek, who who fundamentally taught you, who guided you about how to be so brilliant and so true in the way you speak these Shakespeare lines? How did it come about that you, of all people, managed to communicate them in this extraordinary way that is lacking from so many other well-intentioned actors? I, I find that very difficult, very difficult to answer. Um, I, as very young, I mean, it, it, when I was about six or seven, I I was in the local library, Panto, Panto, Christmas play, not Panto, Christmas play. Um, and that was my first time dressing up, um, trying to be somebody else. With the Shakespearean texts, I just thought I've got to make um, people understand what I'm saying. Um, and I had seen, by which time I had seen uh, performances, um, and I hadn't actually understood it all. Um, it wasn't immediate to me. And I thought there must be a way of saying these lines in a colloquial way. Don't worry about the, the flush and the bloom of poetry on them. That'll speak for itself. You can't get rid of it. But um, be, be, um, be colloquial. Say it as if it's your everyday language. That's the way you talk. Um, and so with that at the back of my head, it, it meant that they, that the text suddenly, uh, the meaning of the texts shone out rather than the way they were being presented to the audience. And if I could understand what I was talking about and using tonalities that the audience would recognize, um, that there was no poetic overlay, there was no uh, recit reciting, the, the, the voice didn't seem, it was my voice saying those words as I will say them to you. Yes, but so, so what's extraordinary, what I find extraordinary when I hear you doing Shakespeare is that on the one hand, it's absolutely clear to me that you have a very deep understanding. You know exactly what you're saying. You absolutely understand the lines perfectly. On the other hand, you appear to be almost improvising that it's a natural thought that's coming to you just as you're about to say it in that second that's very very realistic and and that sort of balance between what's total improvisation and and, the, and what has to have been quite a serious study of it seems to be the whole art and difficulty of of, of acting and so i wondered when you for instance did to be or not to be speech 400 times did you always had you studied it to the degree where you put the lilt or whatever it was or the emphasis on particular words of time, or did you find yourself sounding different every time you did it on those 400 occasions? Again, it's difficult to answer. I, 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 I think basically I ignored punctuation. Uh, I punctuated it for myself. If I wanted that line to mean something uh, slightly other than what the line actually meant, then I would punctuate it in my own way. 
and how it inflected in my own way so that it sounded like spoken thought that I was kind of not exactly making up as I went along, but that, that, that it had an immediacy to it, that it didn't come over as a learned text. It came over, hopefully, I, I hoped, that it came over as spoken thought. And there wasn't necessarily a rhythm um, to it, um, particularly within the more poetic lines. Uh, I sort of thought, forget the rhythm, um, go for what it means. And if you have to stop in the middle of the line to emphasize something, uh, do that. If you want to metaphorically put that word in inverted commas, do that. Um, don't don't worry about about tradition for a start, um, and and make it make it as real and as colloquial and as conversational as you as you can. And if if they throw brickbats at you for that, well then do. <laughs> but but. Uh, I thought that was my way of making it uh, interesting and not just to receive text that many in the audience would have heard before. Um, maybe this was a way of, uh, it would hit their ears in a new way. And they would think, oh, I, oh, I said, oh, yes, yeah, that's interesting. Um, Did you find it difficult to learn learn the text? No, um, and that's my great sorrow now, because oh. I find it more difficult now. No, I was gifted, gifted with um, uh, a wonderful, uh, an instant memory. I mean, I could, I could learn these, and there was no problem. There is now, there is now, big problem. Uh, well, a much bigger problem than it was. Uh, but no, I had no... No problem. Can you share any particular memorable or challenging moments from your live theatre performances? I remember, Derek, not trying to answer for you, but I remember once you got very challenged um, talking about uh, talking about learning lines. Uh, on the, what, did, didn't you have an extraordinary experience on the very last of your 400th Hamlets uh, where you suddenly had a sort of, Freak out! In the, in the, am I right, or have I misremembered that? Where? where? Oh, um... uh, you were performing Hamlet, and I think you were doing the to be or not to be speech, and you suddenly had a, a panic. Oh, I did! I did! That yes. you, you wouldn't yes. be able to remember it or something. Yes, I did. Yes, I, I uh, for two years suffered um, uh, actors. Um, what it was are they called? I I didn't go on stage for two years. I got actors block. Um, and it was while I was playing Hamlet, um, it was the last, I was on tour, and I think somewhere in the south of England, I think, and um, our interval came before, uh, to be or not to be, so the first thing I did after the interval was the nunnery scene, and uh, I was in the wings, and I put a worm of doubt in my head. So stupidly, I, you know, I thought, gosh, I've done this play so often. Um, and it's, it's, it's so familiar. What if I went on the stage and forgot to be or not to be? 
uh, my cue came. I walked on the stage. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or, and I went, a complete blackout. Uh, my costumed, I sweated, my costume turned black with sweat. I, uh, it lasted, it, it must have lasted about 30 seconds, but it felt like an hour. And I picked it up, uh, I went on, finished the play. It was a matinee. I had to do it again that evening. Uh, and I didn't go on stage for two years. I, I scared myself rotten. I, I, I got uh, stage fright. And I gave stage fright to myself by stupidly questioning, uh, what can I remember? And I'd done it umpteen times. And... Uh, it's extra. It's a horrific, a really horrific story. That actually, it's a, it's a real, real nightmare. You know, I've, I've never been able to act. I've never acted. I'm absolutely terrified about ever even thinking of acting in my whole life. And yet, I have these dreams sometimes where I'm an actor on the stage and I can't remember my lines, and it <laughs> completely oh. freaks me. Join the club. Join the club. Yes. I mean, because you can't, especially in Shakespeare, and especially in To Be or Not to Be, you can't just can't improvise. Um, but it was, a, it was a horrible moment, and and as I say, I didn't go on stage for two years, and uh, what got me back on stage was an offer I couldn't refuse from. The Royal Shakespeare Company. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, well, talking of which, talking of the to be or not to be speech, um, I, I bet you've never acted it, but I suspect you are aware that the, the, the to be or not to be had an earlier form that that speech, um, in which it doesn't really sound the same at all. Um, he says, to be or not to be... I've got it here. He says, to be or not to be... Uh, I, there's the point to die to sleep. Oh, yeah, is that all? No, no, to sleep to dream. I marry, there it goes. It's very different, it's a very different speech, oh. which 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 comes in the first quarter of that play. Um, and clearly didn't satisfy the author, or something happened no. to make him revise it. The speech is much better than that. Yeah, well, I read it very badly. I expect if you had read the first quarto version, you'd make it into pure <laughs> music. But, <laughs> um, but it's it's it, it's very interesting that now when it, of course it brings us on to a very interesting fact that you and Maudie and I uh, all have uh, strong reasons to believe that William Shakespeare was actually a pseudonym, and. When you look at things like the revision of the to be or not to be speech, one one cannot help but think back to the author and the relevance of the author in this in this extraordinary three-way dynamic. The the author who channels to the actor, who channels to the audience. Um yeah. so you've been very brave because you 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 had a big reputation. I think things have got well, you still have a massive reputation, but the, the things have got better. But I think when you first when you first announced to the world 
that you thought that William Shakespeare was a, a pseudonym. You got a lot of heavy hammers coming crashing down on your head, and it's people being very life. rude about you. Can you remember? Can you remember whether you thought carefully before you gave the public that information, or how <laughs> it slipped out, or what happened there? No, it was um, the book I read that. Uh, um, what was it called? Um, Probably was it Ogburn? Was it the mysterious, oh, oh, the mysterious yeah. William Shakespeare? Probably Charlton Ogburn. Yes, I and somebody gave that to me and said this is a fascinating. It's never occurred to me before that um, that uh, anybody but um, William of Stratford had written it, and that really, I thought this, this is. I believe this. I believe this, and then I, I made my own. Uh, inquiries and, and uh, I became quite convinced that um, the man from Stratford, his only connection with the plays was um, his being member of a troupe of actors on the South Bank in London, uh, that he had uh, no input in the, the actual writing of them and there was no evidence to say that he, that he, he had written them. Um, and w where it all started and the, uh, the, the birthplace. And suddenly it had become Shakespeare was not just a, an Elizabethan dramatist. He, he, was, he was God um, and, and Stratford on Avon. It was a hallowed place um, and uh, the birthplace. And suddenly... It became a kind of toy town, you know, and and uh, it became anathema to, and particularly for an actor, to say that no, I don't believe Shakespeare uh, in Stratford wrote them. I believe somebody else wrote them. And uh, gradually, as I as I read, um, the Earl of Oxford became for me the nearest thing to how I imagined the author to be. But do you remember thinking twice about telling people that you thought this? Or did you? Yeah. are you the sort of person who just says what you believe and out it came and then all yeah. hell broke loose? I knew it would cause ructions. I knew it would cause um, some particularly, uh, well, the, the people from Stratford, the, 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 um, the great believers in, uh, I won't mention names, um, in Stratford, uh, called called me insane, called me mad. Uh, okay, well, I'm insane, I'm mad, but that's that's what I now believe. Um, I think the nearest, as I say, was Oxford, um, but I'm not saying it's it was definitely him. Nobody else. I I don't, I I still don't know, but I I am firmly convinced that it it wasn't the man. They say it wasn't the man that's around. How did your fellow actors react to your doubts? Did you have any, or did you have face any challenging uh, discussions with them? Um, not really. They they kind of refused to discuss it, um, <laughs> and I was I was surprised that fellow Shakespearean actors, well known Shakespearean, actors, you know, I thought I, I thought I was mad. I thought Mark was mad, um, and kind of. Didn't want to discuss it. Didn't want to talk about it. I, I'm I'm very fond of Derek, but look, I, don't let's go there. Don't let's go there. Um, and that was the sort of reaction. 
um, not not to be discussed. It, it was it was uh, beyond the pale, beyond the pale. It was like '94. Now you you read history at, at Cambridge University, didn't you? And no, then when I acted all the time. Well, you yeah, but you you were there to read history, I whether you acted all the time or not. <laughs> but and and then of course being an actor. So I I just imagine your your latest reading of of Ogburn's extraordinarily long book it's sort of 800 pages it's a very good and worth reading book but how passages of that were, would be resonating with you as you read it as both an actor who knows Shakespeare pretty intimately uh, but also a historian who has this sense of of history and a mind that is trained to some degree to challenge history um that perhaps put you in a different position from some of the other people you find yourself having to argue against who either instinctively or spiritually just wish to believe that Shakespeare was William of Stratford. Yes, I think my historical instincts uh, also weighed heavily on the side of uh, it wasn't the Stratford man. Um, the, 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 the historical trails um, to to the plays, to the characters, um, just were wrong if you believed in Stratford. Um, and I, I think that those uh, historical senses of finding uh, trails, finding ways in, finding reasons for, uh, were part of the historical mind, and uh, with, which I suppose I had, um, and it it ended up just not making sense. Did playing Hamlet um, or directing Hamlet deepen your connection to Edward de Vere? I can't say it did. Shall we say I, Edward de Vere doesn't come into the theatre with me? Uh, he doesn't help me in the theatre. Uh, as as such, um, certainly not as an actor or a director, and um, certainly not in Hamlet because there's too much other to think about. But Derek, am I right in thinking that you read the Ogburn book and, and got convinced by the Oxfordian argument after you had acted all the Hamlets? You'd done the Hamlets oh, first, yes, yes, yes. Then, then you read this book. And, and I assume we're very, very interested in, in, in the passages of that book that are about Hamlet, uh, which show how many aspects of the Hamlet seem to be autobiographical. Yeah. And what's always amazed me is that the Stratfordianist, i.e. The, the, the person who believes that William of Stratford wrote the plays, uh, they've gone on for many, many years saying they don't have much about the biography of William of Stratford or practically anything of any interest, but they've been saying that Hamlet has to be the most autobiographical of William Shakespeare's plays. Uh, yet they can't match any incident in Hamlet to anything from the life of William of Stratford. Oh. And yet along comes the, the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, and there's incident after incident after incident that seem to mirror very precisely what went on in his own life, yeah. uh, including the early death of his father, uh, the, the precipitous marriage of his mother to somebody else, uh, being shipwrecked and stripped naked by pirates. Um, I mean, it, it it sort of goes on and on and on. Um, 
In fact, in fact, Edward de Vere even dreamt that he saw the ghost of his stepfather, rather like um, Hamlet sees the ghost of his actual father. Um, the, 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 your deep, deep knowledge of Hamlet, when you read that book, so I'm not talking about how, if you were to play Hamlet today, how knowing about Edward de Vere would alter your performance, but just reading that book and having all that background on Hamlet, it must have resonated very strongly with you. Oh, it did. It did. I mean, the, the, the connections between um, what we uh, glean, certainly from the plays, of the character of the man uh, who wrote them, whoever wrote them, um, suddenly coalesced with what we were finding out about De Vere. Um, and the connections were mind-bogglingly close. Which was which wasn't uh, the fact with the man from Stratford, where there, there was nothing uh, contingent between his his life, his experience, what we know of, of all that, and and the place. The only connection was the company that he joined in in London. That was that's the only connection he had with with um, play acting. Certainly not playwriting. Certainly not playwriting, and and in even play acting, uh, we don't know a hundred percent what no. he what he acted if he acted anything at all. But he was certainly involved with the business side of of the of the Chamberlain's men. Yes. Um, I want to I want to remind you of something. You may have even totally forgotten, but I was listening to it just the other day. You made a recording, um, an, an audio recording of the letters of Edward de Vere. And I was just astounded listening to those, uh, how even a sort of transactional business letter, uh, when read by you, sounds uh, pure Shakespeare. <laughs> do you remember making I that recording? That. Yes, I do. I do remember that. Um, they, 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 were, they were beautifully written, um, although their subjects might have been, uh, certainly to me, rather mundane, rather ordinary, but they... They kind of lifted off the page with the way um, they were expressed. Um, I, I suppose reading one automatically, uh, not put on a voice, but read them, uh, if I was reading them truthfully, um, their intrinsic value, uh, literary, poetic, whatever value, um, came to the surface. Yes. Would you would you mind if um, if when we edit this 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 conversation, if we just intersperse a little bit? There's an absolutely beautiful letter that Edward de Vere writes to Robert Cecil about the death of Queen Elizabeth, and he says how he's left uh, rather like a ship uh, without an anchor, without a sail. So if we might just intersperse a, a little bit of that with your yeah. reading it on that recording, that would be great. I can't remember it, but uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it's it's really it's a beautiful bit of Shakespearean prose. It's absolutely wonderful. I cannot but find a great grief in myself to remember the mistress which we have lost, under whom both you and myself from our greenest years have been in a manner brought up, and although it hath pleased God after an earthly kingdom to take her up into a more permanent and heavenly state, wherein I do not doubt but she is crowned with glory, and to give us a prince wise, learned, 
and enriched with all the virtues, yet, after the long time which we spent in her service, we cannot look for so much left of our days as to bestow upon another. The long acquaintance and kind familiarities wherewith she did use us, we are not ever to expect from another prince, as denied by the infirmity of age and common course of reason. In this common shipwreck, mine is above all the rest, who least regarded, though often comforted, of all her followers she hath left to try my fortune among the alterations of time and chance, either without sail, whereby to take the advantage of any prosperous gale, or with anchor, to ride till the storm be overpassed. Derek, what's your favourite sonnet and why? I suppose, shall I compare the... Which is uh, number 18, isn't it? Is it? Number 18, yes. Yes, I think it is. And and actually, this has, in my mind, a very, very interesting connection again to Veer, because uh, Veer's first, well, sorry, Shakespeare's, I should say, first 17 sonnets are known as the procreation sonnets. And in them, he's urging a fair youth to have a a baby and everyone argues about who Shakespeare is and who that baby is and why he's urging someone else to have a baby for him but never mind all that one of one of the great big arguments in those first 18 17 sonnets is if you don't have a baby if you don't father a baby for love of me which is a very odd thing your beauty will die your beauty will live through lines eternal lines and then so and one of the arguments he gives he says um ragged winter will catch up with you basically ragged winter will catch up with you and and your beauty will die and then in sonnet 18 he compares him to a summer's day and talks of his eternal summers shall not die so it gives the impression that this baby has been born and this has led to a lot of theories that the earl of oxford uh, was unable to have an heir he was of course was the 17th earl of oxford i.e the 17 procreation sonnet and he actually got southampton to uh, a surrogate an heir to the earldom of Oxford, who was the 18th Earl of Oxford. Therefore, the 18th sonnet uh, talks about the eternal summer that shall not die. And it's a very interesting fact that a contemporary called Anthony Mundy writes to the 18th Earl of Oxford, long after the 17th Earl of Oxford is dead, and he alludes to the 18th sonnet of Shakespeare. So it does rather look like that's what's going on. My knowledge of sonnets is, is not profound. Well, maybe, but I've I've heard you reading them very profoundly indeed. And I think one day, if you ever had the stamina, energy, goodwill, whatever, uh, to make a recording of those sonnets would be an absolutely fantastic thing to do because you would do it so beautifully. Right. I'll get my agent on to it immediately. <laughs> Good idea. Send us the bill. I'm I'm sure we can I'm absolutely sure we can we can we can raise the money to whatever your agent wants to get that recording out because it would be absolutely wonderful. The other thing would be lovely is to record some of the poems that people wrote about Shakespeare at the time. Now, in a recent um conference for the De Vere Society, you read a section of Ben Johnson's poem about William Shakespeare, the encomium, which I think is a really beautiful and very, very extraordinary yeah. poem. Yeah. So another thing to get your get onto your agent about is 
maybe reading some of these poems by Ben Jonson and other contemporaries writing about Shakespeare. About Shakespeare, yes. Because we never hear them read out loud. And some, well, I would say Ben Jonson is rare because he really is a great poet. Some of them aren't so great, but it's still wonderful to hear them read aloud rather than just see them on the page. Right. I will look into that. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, you so sitting down, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things I want to just ask you briefly about is, well, let's put it this way. One of the things I find about Shakespeare is, is the sheer beauty of the lines and the ability to compress such a big thought into such a small space just in two lines or three lines he can say something that that is so pregnant with meaning and beautifully stated and no wonder he's the most quoted person probably outside of the bible but i mean he's the most quoted source from anywhere and he's one of those authors who you you're just I'm put into an ecstasy just reading the lines. I almost don't care about the stories. I mean, of course, some of the stories, Lear and Hamlet are amazing, but things like Comedy of Errors are rather fatuous in my view, but doesn't mean there aren't beautiful lines. Yeah. Um, I Sorry, I've just given you a monologue about my thoughts of Shakespeare. So that, I, totally the opposite of what I wanted to do, because I, well, I would just like to hear, let, let's hear your response anyway to, 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 to that sort of line of thinking. Um, I... Well, as as uh, an actor, of course, they are, they are a gift for an actor. Um, um, nobody I don't, that I have ever met can express or has expressed um, the deep truths of life uh, in in such a simple way as as uh, whoever wrote Shakespeare uh, wrote. Um, the profundity that is um, evident in the simplest, uh, so the simplest serving up of something that is so deep, um, it requires. It's so surprising that um, you know sometimes when I when I when I read Shakespeare for the first time, it was a very very slow process because what it was saying was so deep, and yet what I was reading was so simple and beautiful um, and true uh, that it, it, it was remarkable, absolutely remarkable, that he could think a thought and then be able to express it so poignantly, so truly, so beautifully, um, seemingly so easily um, it dripped off his pen um, it was an amazing facility Shakespeare uh, for, for me is, 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 is beauty it's uh, beauty um, in the mouth it's beauty on the ear um, and, uh, it's, it's beauty in the mind so it must be a massive thrill to to be the person who can channel this 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 mind from 400 years ago straight to a modern audience of people in front of you and not only feel as a really good actor feel totally moved by what you're saying or moved to hilarity if it's a comic aspect or or to tears if it's a tragic aspect and to see the effect of that 
coming around to a modern audience is an extraordinary triangle that, that begs the question, what is what is Hamlet? And is, yeah, is, it, I, is, I, is it in the mind? The, 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 the trick of it all, of, of any acting really, is, is to um, experience it yourself. But at the same time as you're experiencing it, sharing it with the audience, it's no good you experiencing up there on the stage and they are looking at their programs, they are not involved. The whole essence of the performance, on, on any performance, is to, you do it for them, not for you. You you had a journey. You have had a journey of learning, of understanding, or of feeling, um, and you have to package all that up and give it to them so they can make the same journey. Uh, it's it's harder for them because it, it, it's immediate and it's up to the actor to present it in such a way that the immediacy of what we're offering is is completely and wholly absorbable um, like that uh, by by the audience um, and that's that's the the trick of it. Trick is not a perhaps a nice word to use, but it is a trick. There is a, it is. In a sense, trickery. Um, uh, it's, well, you're you're referring to the the craft, the the yes, skill often, of acting as a trickery. Called, it's often called technique. But do you not think that there is? Sorry, Derek. Do do you not think there is also something ethereal about it? That there is a oh, mystic, yeah. a mystic element, even that 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 God, if you like yes. or don't like, is is playing some role in this threesome of of writer, actor, audience. Yes, I yes I agree, but it's not something that you uh, are aware of. Something that you accept that that is there, that is always uh, part of the communication. Um, something that you what not of, but it's it's. Um, it's the magic of the theatre. The magic of the theatre. Sure, there is a match uh, between us and them that, that we're not in charge of. It descends, it's there. Um, and it, it will come under the right circumstances. You have to create the circumstances and that, that added, that added thing will come. And you may not actually be aware of its presence, but the audience will be aware of it. Um, you, 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 you're, in effect, the tradesman. Um, the product is, is what they are buying. And, uh, uh, sometimes there is something about the product that has nothing to do with you. You have produced it, but something something else, something magical, something ethereal is happening. So I, years ago, I made a television programme about piano playing. Yes. And they put my head into a, what are they called, uh, Maudie, when, when you, in a hospital, when they read your brain? Uh, MRI? An MRI scanner. Yeah. And they made me play the piano with, um, well, I was in the MRI scanner. And they realized that I was playing the piano with the, only that part of the brain that did not deal with emotion at all. So this goes back to your idea, Derek, that, that, that there's a kind of trick involved, that a very skillful actor is, in a sense, playing tricks. 
because but but at the same time i think i've heard you saying in other interviews and things that you do genuinely feel the emotion you know the the tears of Lear when cordelia dies you're actually feeling it so it's not really all trick is it it's um somehow there's a merge between the trick and the skill and the craft of acting and what's really happening becomes so real that combination of all of them but but trickery is there uh what i i mean when i say an awareness of of so that the you know when when you are overcome by emotion and the tears are flowing at the same time there is an awareness that the tears are flowing that uh this is part of a performance there always has to be an awareness um that you, you don't cut off entirely you appear to cut off but um the, the art is is the 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 appearance of having totally let go no no actors don't totally let go they're they're still in control when they appear to be absolutely broken um they're still in control they have to be uh because they've been able to do it eight times a week yes and and the extraordinary oh, thing I notice with actors, really good actors such as yourself, are all really good classical musical performers, is is they draw the audience into them as well as projecting out to the audience. There's a sort of double um there's a sort of double movement of energy. It's yeah. not just an, an actor doesn't just stand and project. Uh, there's something there's something that draws the audience towards a great actor so they can't get their eyes off their off the actor's eyes, they can't. They they're completely gripped by it. There's an energy going both ways. Do you feel that, or am I just inventing yes, it? No, you do because you are doing it for them. You are not just parading yourself, saying, "Aren't I clever?" Because I can <laughs> these lines and and spout them out. And no, no, no. Your 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 actual your job is is to uh, make them feel. Make them be moved. Make them feel involved. Uh, that's what they paid their money for to have that experience. You, you have uh, hopefully got a talent to give them that experience uh, without actually ruining yourself. Um, uh, without actually. To get so emotional that you get ill with it. No, you've got to do it again and again and again. Um, but you do it for them. They've got to feel if they feel if you can make them feel ill or sick or happy or whatever. Um, they've got to. That's what they paid for to 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 feel, not just to watch and and listen, but to feel, to think, to go somewhere that. Uh, you can only go to in a theatre in front of actors. What's your favourite theatre to perform in, Derek? Oh, I think it was the Old Vic. I was there for a while and I love the Old Vic. It kind of, it welcomes you. It uh, it loves actors, you know, and uh, you go out on that. I, was, I used to go to the black theatre as a schoolboy. Um, I watched the actors, and then I was um, allowed on that stage, and I performed on that stage. And 
Uh, one of my great experiences was laying hand on top stage of the old bib, and Richard Burton was in the audience, and I didn't know. And I had, had Richard Burton had played Hamlet on that same stage. I saw it. He, I saw he had, it. Oh, you saw it, yeah. As a schoolboy. And then he came to see you. He came and he came round afterwards, um, and you know said how much he'd enjoyed it, and uh, we went out to dinner, uh, and it was a, it was a magical night because. I remember sitting up in the vault watching him play Hamlet down there. And it was a magical moment when the, the, the dressing room door opened and there stood Richard Burton. It was just amazing. Wow. I somehow imagine that your respective Hamlet performances were very different from one another. I don't know why I say that, but... I can't... He, he was very romantic because uh, he's very handsome and... Uh, a film star, and yeah, he had great charisma. Great charisma. I can't remember. Did he do it in a Welsh accent? Uh, he always had a lilt. Yes, yeah. he had a lilt in his voice. Yeah, lovely voice, lovely voice. Beautiful voice. Yes, I've got his recording of uh, Dylan Thomas under Milk Wood, which oh, yeah. just, just pure music, isn't it? Really. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, Derek, I cannot say to you what an honor it's been to talk to you i'd love to go on and on and on but we've uh, already hit the hour and um i, I just feel we, we it's a, a tragedy but we're going to we're going to have to draw it to a close but thank you very very much you do us great honor on our little podcast by talking to us and yes, thank you so much derek it's, it's been a pleasure very very interesting as well absolutely fascinating so Many, many thanks. Uh, if you're a listener to this and you've enjoyed this, uh, please subscribe. And uh, we, we're going to do many more 1740 podcasts, which are linked uh, to the De Vere Society. And uh, we'll let you know who the guests are going to be in future. But I very much doubt we're going to have anyone of quite the incredible caliber and genius and brilliance of Sir Derek Jacobi. Thank you. Gotcha.